Hey everybody, welcome. Great to have you. Uh, thanks for coming and being a part of Christ Community Chapel. Welcome all campuses and venues. Uh, welcome those of you worshiping at Aurora, uh, those of you at Restoration, those of you at the Hudson campus, both in the sanctuary and over in East Hall. Everybody tuning in. Welcome. All right. We have a theme for the year. Our theme is transformed in 2018. And the idea is we want to be different in December than we are right now. And let me say this to, you know, I'm still kind of uh, buzzing uh, with uh, the baptisms from a couple of weeks ago at the Hudson campus. Uh, in Aurora, something's going to happen with you guys soon. I can't tell you. All right. <laughs> but uh, I just want to remind you, those of you 451 people taking a, a step, a huge step of obedience to be baptized. And uh, obedience has a momentum. Disobedience has a momentum. The more you disobey, the more you will disobey. The more you obey, the more you will obey. Capitalize on the momentum of obedience. All right? All of us. All right. We start a new series uh, this week, and it's a five-week series. It's going to take us all the way to Easter, and it's called The Cross Changes Everything. The Cross Changes Everything. And today, we start the first message, which is the way to forgiveness, the way to forgiveness. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 4. I'm going to read the, the last verse and a half of Romans chapter 4 and the first eight verses of Romans chapter 5, and then we're going to talk about it. This is what it says, first uh, Romans chapter 4. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is God's word. Wow. Those verses are just packed with treasure. I mean, amazing stuff. I don't know if you caught it all. I mean, it talks about, about justification and reconciliation with God and peace with God and joy and rejoicing through suffering and character and hope and love and grace poured out on us. I mean, if we could just take those, what, nine and a half verses and really get those deep down into our souls, we would be different by December. We would be transformed. That's like a mine that's just laden with gold. And I'm just going to try to, to pull out just a, a few nuggets today. I don't want to have three points as we talk about the way to forgiveness. I want to talk about 
the need for forgiveness, the verb for forgiveness, and the proof of forgiveness. The need, the verb, and the proof. First, the need for forgiveness. It's important for us to talk about the need for forgiveness because unless we realize the depth of the need, we will never really understand the richness of the cross or the power that the cross has to actually change everything about us. Years ago, I, um, I read something. I don't even know where I read it. I don't know who said it, but it stuck with me. And the older I get, and the, the more I know my own heart, the more true this seems. And this is the statement. Most people can only pretend to be forgiven because they only pretend to be sinners. He said it again. Most people can only pretend to be forgiven because they only pretend to be sinners. The need for forgiveness is this. The cross impacts two basic diseases of the human soul. They are two of the most deadly diseases. These two things will mess you up, either one. And they sound like they're the same, but they're different. They're related. They're like disease cousins, but they're different. One is guilt, and the other is shame. Guilt is something, is a disease you get from what you do, and shame is a disease you get from who you are. Guilt happens from what you do, and shame happens from what you feel like you are. All right, let me talk about guilt first. Guilt is something you get. I almost said guilt is something you feel, but guilt is not just a feeling. You feel guilt, but that's not all it is. It's deeper than that. It's like uh, the flu is more than a feeling, right? The flu is something you feel, but it's more than a feeling. The flu is something that's happening deep down in your body. And what you feel are the symptoms of what's going on deep down in your body. Same thing with guilt. By the time you feel guilty, then something has happened deep down in your soul that has caused you to feel that symptom of guilt that we call guilt. Explain it like this. What causes guilt? Got this idea when we were cooking spaghetti. It's a strand of raw spaghetti. Uh, guilt happens when you break a standard. Right? Imagine you tell a little lie. Not a big lie, just a little lie. This is what happens. And when this happens, uh, we usually do a lot of things to try to figure out how to deal with what we feel when we break a standard like lying. We try to say, well, you know, it, it was, it's not that big of a thing. Uh, I didn't mean anything by it. I just didn't want to get into it at the time. I was tired. Uh, we can say wh whatever. There's a lot of different ways we try to deal with guilt. But what happens when you break a standard, it just kind of, I'm going to use this bowl, it kind of flutters down into the floor of our soul and it just sits there. Right? And then we can try to, to lower our standards and that's what's happened in our culture where we've said that things that used to be wrong, we say are no longer wrong anymore. So we do it because everybody else does it or it's because we were born that way or whatever. And we, but we still, we are breaking standards and we feel this little kind of ping 
and more things kind of flutter down to our souls. And they sit in the floor of our souls. Here's a question. How do you know what a real standard is? There's a verse uh, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' most famous sermon. And people take that verse and they misuse it all the time, but this is the verse. It's in uh, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, Judge not, lest ye be judged. By the standard of measure you use, so it will be measured to you. Judge not, lest ye be judged. By the standard of measure you use, so it will be used on you. You want to know what your real standard is? You can't look at you. You look at what you see in other people. What standard you hold other people to? Is it okay for people to lie to you? Is it okay for people to, to yell at you because they're tired? <laughs> is it okay for people to cheat you? Is it okay for people to talk about you behind your back? Is it okay for people to gossip about you? Is it okay for people to think the worst about you? See, this is what happens. We are, it's so easy to be blinded to ourselves when we, when we hold ourselves up to the standard of being a really good person. But we have 20-20 vision when it comes to looking at other people to see if they are being a really good person. Uh, this is something that's going to happen that's interesting. Uh, a, a, a student, uh, he was a senior, he's a senior in high school, he just contacted me. And uh, there's a project in his school where he's going to be released from his school for three weeks to shadow someone. And uh, it's kind of like this senior project. And he wants to be a, a pastor. So he contacted me and asked me if he could shadow me for three weeks, for 30 hours each week. Right? And I've already started thinking, it's going to be an interesting thing to have happen for him and for me. But I've already started to think, well, what will that feel like? What, what am I going to do? Uh, am I going to, you know, try to act like I'm busier than I am? What, I mean, what about my downtime? I mean, I, I'm going to be always looking at this kid and just going, uh, it doesn't look like I'm doing much, but I'm thinking, you know. <laughs> I don't know. What would it be like? What would it be like for Jesus to shadow you for 30 hours a week, for three weeks, and hold you to the standard of goodness that Jesus holds people to? How many times would you feel this? How many times? And by the end of those three weeks, what would accumulate on the floor of your soul? And how would you deal with that? The cross deals with guilt. It has to. Something has to be able to deal with the guilt of your soul. And forgiveness has to touch that. And this is the way it does. Those first verses in Romans chapter 4. It says that it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus went to the cross for our trespasses. You can't deal with guilt by trying to heal it any more than you can put, once you've broken a standard, you can't put it back together again. You can't Trespasses can't be healed, but trespasses can be paid for. And that's what happens on the cross. You want to know how the cross deals with guilt? That's the way.
Jesus goes and he pays for that. So that's swept off the floor of your soul. Everyone. Now, shame is different than guilt. Shame might be a little bit more serious disease of the soul than even guilt is. Because shame is something where, if guilt, in, in my mind's eye, if guilt is something that gathers on the floor of our soul, then shame is something that sticks to, the, to our souls like tar. And you can feel shame not only for, for something that you do, but you can feel shame for something that's been done to you. And the way the cross speaks to shame is the cross is the symbol of shame. The cross is the symbol of shame that actually turns shame on its head. And this is what I mean. In today's world, in, here in, in America, whenever anyone is executed, and of course the cross was a, a mode of execution. Now, if somebody is executed here for a crime, because we have a law that's a, that says that it's, it's against the law for cruel and unusual punishment, We've tried to find modes of execution that maintain the dignity of a human being and doesn't increase their shame. But in the first century, the cross was designed as a cruel and unusual punishment, and it was designed to maximize shame. That's why in the first century, when somebody was crucified, they were crucified completely naked so that that would be the last kind of vestige of dignity, they would strip away and say, you hang there naked because we want to maximize your shame. And here's my question. There were different modes of execution in the first century. There have been modes of execution throughout human history. Why would God choose a mode of execution for his son that would maximize shame if all he needed to do was pay for our guilt. And the reason is because Jesus went to the cross and he was taking our shame with him. Because the only cure for shame, because shame impacts someone's value. If you are, are experiencing shame or you've ever had shame hit you, then you feel worthless, you feel valueless. The only antidote for shame is love. Pure, concentrated, focused, transformative, powerful love. And that's why in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the last verse I read, it says, but God showed his love. He demonstrated his love, his potent, his concentrated, his powerful, his transformative love on us so that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The reason that the cross impacts our shame is because shame says something about your value as a human. How do, you, how do you determine the value of anything? You determine the value of something by what someone is willing to pay for it. And what Scripture says is that God demonstrated his love for you by putting his son on the cross. And there is no greater price than that. So there is no greater value that someone could have. So the cross changes the actual need for forgiveness. And the cross impacts shame and guilt 
in a different way than anything ever has or ever will. The second point is that it changes the verb of forgiveness. I don't know how much you remember from school, but verbs are words of action, right? And uh, so whenever you're talking about forgiveness, you're talking about some kind of verb of action. And the cross actually changes the tense of the verb for forgiveness from do to done. And that doesn't seem like a huge change, but nothing could be bigger. And this is what, I mean, every single religion, every system has a way to deal with shame and guilt. They have to, because shame and guilt are the the primary diseases of the human soul. And I've had the privilege of going to different countries to see how other religions deal with shame and with guilt. And I was in one country, and uh, once a year, they have a ritual where they go to a particular city, and there's a big thoroughfare that goes up a, kind of a, a, a small mountain. It's a half a mile up this mountain. And it's strewn with these sharp rocks. And what, they, what everybody does is they get down on their hands and knees and they crawl over these sharp rocks for a half a mile to, to kiss the feet of a statue. And they do that so that they can try to deal with their shame and their guilt. They're doing that to try to take care of shame and guilt. I've gone to another country where they're constantly taking meals into a temple. And they take the meal into the temple before, and they lay it before the God because they're, they're trying to appease the God to deal with their shame and their guilt. So they're constantly doing this. It's the verb doing. Uh, my wife and I, we read the Bible uh, through every year. And this week we were sitting next to each other on the couch and we were reading silently And she looked up and said to me, hey, have I told you I'm not a fan of Leviticus? (laughs) That's what she said. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. And uh, Leviticus is all about rules, and it's all about transgressions and guilt, and it's all about sacrifices. There's constant sacrifices happening. And a lot of people don't know, but... You know, these sacrifices happened at first in the tabernacle, which was like a big tent. And then when the Jews had their own place, kind of their own country, then they built the temple, which was kind of the, the building that all the sacrifices took place in. And in both those places, the tabernacle and the temple, there are no, there's no furniture to sit on. The priests have nowhere to sit because when the priests were on duty, they were always doing. They were always making sacrifices. Because every time they would make a sacrifice, it's like the bowl would be empty, then the bowl would, be sit, would sit back down, and then more things would go in the bowl. So they'd have to, to have to keep on doing sacrifices to pay for sin in one way or another. And that happened all the way up until the cross. And then the cross changed it. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. It says, And by that Well, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Right there. The verb changes from do to done. What God provided was a sacrifice that was so powerful through his son 
that no other sacrifice would ever have to be made again. So Jesus sat down. He sat down. Because it was done. Right? Grace greater than all my sin. Grace greater than all your sin. So the cross impacts the need for forgiveness. The cross impacts the verb of forgiveness. And finally, the proof of forgiveness. The proof of How do you know? How do you know you're forgiven? How do you know you're not just pretending to be forgiven? You know, the, the cross provides two ways to know you're forgiven. One on the outside and one on the inside. The one on the outside, every Easter, I mention the same thing. Every Easter, I tell people, that uh, one of the things that makes Christianity different than all the other religions is that Christianity is based, is rooted in history. It's based on a historical event, which is very gutsy, by the way. Every other religion is based on teaching. Uh, and when, you, when it's based on teaching, you can disagree with it, but you can't disprove it. You can disagree with Buddhism, but you can't disprove Buddhism. You can disagree with Hinduism, you can't disprove it. You can disagree with Islam, you can't disprove it. But Christianity is not based on the teachings of Jesus. It's based on the historical event of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And if you can disprove the death and resurrection of Jesus, then Christianity completely goes away. God gives us the cross as something that is tangible, something that is physical, something that you can see, something that actually happened, right? Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, right? But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's a question. Why do people give engagement rings? I gave an engagement ring to my wife, right? I told her, I love you. I want to marry you. I will love you to the end of time, right? All that was true, right? But it was intangible. And so I gave her something tangible. I gave her something precious. That's why it's diamond, right? So I say, here, take this. I will love you to the end of time, but I want to give you this because I want to make the intangible tangible. I want to give you something you can see, something you can touch, because if you can see it and you can touch it, maybe you will believe what you can't see, what you can't touch. Maybe you'll really believe how much I love you. I wanted to demonstrate it for her, to show her. Why do we have the cross? Why does it say, but God demonstrated his love toward us by Jesus going to the cross? Because God was saying, listen, I will forgive you, but I'm going to give you something that, that's intangible, but I'm going to give you something tangible, because if you can see it and you can feel it, maybe you'll believe it, that I love you. Right? That's the proof on the outside. Then there's a proof on the inside. And this is actually, I want, you, I want to warn you, this is actually where this message actually convicted me. And whenever uh, a message convicts me, uh, I think that's a good thing. It's good for me. It's bad for you because if I'm going to be convicted, I'm going to try to convict you. All right? But this is, how do you know on the inside 
that you're not pretending to be forgiven, that you've actually received grace and it's gone down deep in you, and you've understood your need for forgiveness in such a way that the profoundness of forgiveness is yours and grace has been had by you. Do you know how you know? Here's the question. How good are you at forgiving other people? I say that because in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a very disturbing story. Uh, Peter goes up to Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 and says, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? And Jesus responds with this story. He says, uh, Peter, let me tell you a story. There was a king who had a bunch of servants. And one day he called his servants to settle their accounts. And there was a servant who owed the king 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents is a a talent is uh, an amount of money. It's an enormous amount of money. 10,000 talents is, uh, I actually looked it up, it's um, 200,000 years of a common man's wages. 200,000 years of a common man's wages. And the man said, I don't have it. And the king said, oh, that's bad. Off you go. And the man hit his knees and pled with the king and said, please have mercy on me. And Jesus says the king forgave him. He forgave the debt. 200,000 years. It's a lot. It's at least two boxes. (laughs) So then Jesus says this servant went out And he found a fellow servant, a friend of his. And he didn't say to the guy, oh, you won't believe what happened. You won't believe what happened. I owed 200,000 years of wages, and he forgave me. That's not what he said. What he said was this. You owe me 200 denarii. 200 denarii is uh, two-thirds of one year. Two-thirds of one year. And the man said, I don't have it. And the servant said, that's bad. Off you go. And the guy said in the same words, have mercy on me. And the servant said, no. I want justice from you. You owe me. You have wronged me. I will not forgive you. You will pay. You will pay. Then Jesus says, the king heard about it, and the king called the servant back, and the king said, let me get this straight. I forgive you 200,000 years of wages, and I said, you get mercy, and you went out and found somebody who owed you two-thirds of a year who did that to you, and you said, no mercy? You said, justice? You want justice? And gee, this is what's disturbing. The king said, okay, you get justice. 200,000 years. And the parable ends. You want to know 
if you've understood guilt and shame, if you're not pretending to be a sinner and then you can only pretend to be forgiven, this is how you know. Because what Jesus says is if you realize you've been forgiven such a great amount by the only king that really matters, and someone wrongs you, they really do wrong you, and you go to them and you say, I cannot forgive you, then what Jesus says is you don't understand all that you've been forgiven. Because what happens here, when you've been forgiven of this much, grace comes so far deep inside of you that when somebody else needs grace and mercy, it comes flowing out of you because it's flowed into you. So how are you doing? How do you deal with your guilt and your shame? Do you understand this deep need for forgiveness? Do you understand the standards that you have broken over and over and over again? Do you understand that, that God demonstrated his love toward you by paying not just for your trespasses, but also addressing your shame and saying you are of such value. Let me love you in such a way that your shame will actually disappear. Have you, do you recognize that the verb has changed from you trying to do and do and do to please God to something that Jesus has already done? And your value comes from not what you do, but from, what, from whose you are and what's been done for you. And finally, do you have the proof of love? Do you have the proof of forgiveness deep down? Where you recognize it on the cross that, that God gave us something tangible. So if we can see it and we can feel it, we might really believe it. And will you, if you have somebody to forgive, will you take that? Look at your sin. Revel in the grace and become not just one who has been forgiven, but one who can forgive. Transformed. 2018. The cross changes everything. Let it change us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, come to you. And uh, I am so grateful. And I am sorry that at different times I find it so difficult to forgive people. And that's crazy. Because you, in your amazing grace, have forgiven me of every single thing. And you have taken care of the guilt and the shame that is rightfully mine. Lord, I pray that for every single one of us, you will transform us through your forgiveness into being forgivers. So we will be so full of grace and mercy that it will come out of us to people who need grace and mercy. Thank you. Thanks for the chance to have communion now. We pray this in your blessed name. Amen.